Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and mm, it is perfect. Okay, speaking of Neuro Coffee, I get this message from my buddy Christian Wonders over the weekend and he says, hey, you got to go check out Logan Morrison's Instagram page because Logan does uh, coffee reviews as part of his Instagram. And if you don't know Logan, Logan's the first baseman for the Milwaukee Brewers. So obviously great athlete and an interesting human um, to say the least. Uh, but anyway, so Logan did his Neuro Coffee review and he happened to throw in a little shout out to yours truly, which I thought was awesome. So he did the Bill Hartman imitation with the, uh, with the it is perfect phrasing. Um, after he, he taste tested his neuro coffee. So I thought that was awesome. Logan, I appreciate you so much um, for doing that. Um, very cool. So now it seems that I'm going to have to be a Milwaukee Brewers fan because lost Josh Lindblom, pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, and now Logan Morrison of the Milwaukee Brewers are, are my, my two favorite baseball players. So I will be a Brewers fan this season if we ever get to see some baseball. So that's exciting. Big deal today, uh, first, uh, Q&A for IFAST University members only. So if you're not signed up for IFASTU, I would suggest you do so um, very, very quickly because we're going to do that that show at, at 2 p.m. And again, like I said, members only. Uh, we got the uh, coaches uh, call, the, the coffee and coaches call at 6 a.m. on Thursday morning as usual. So please um, don't forget about that. And yesterday, had a big call with the intensive folks. So the intensive group, anybody that's gone through the intensive gets to participate in an ongoing discussion group where we do case studies and reviews and, and strategize and we look at different presentations so we can keep on learning and applying the model. And um, there was a question that came up yesterday that was related to some videos that I've already shot, but I thought it'd be a great way to lead, in, lead into the week because I think it's a, a pretty common uh, question as to what differentiates the medial knee pain from lateral knee pain. So that was the question. And so let's go through that sequence because I, I think that if you see how these presentations arise, it will help you understand the strategies that are, that are explained in the videos that I've already posted. So those videos are up on YouTube, depending on where you're watching this. Um, they're also on Instagram, but they're probably a little bit easier to find on YouTube. Um, the thing that I want you to understand when we're dealing with this medial or lateral knee pain is that it is the result of a, a loss of relative motion somewhere and that somewhere is typically going to be from the ground up so we're going to see it show up in the foot a lot and so if we look at at the way that the foot moves through um, space we've talked about the heel rocker ankle rocker toe rocker thing um, so as we as we hit with the with the heel rocker and the foot goes to flat we've got this supinated position at the, at the subtail joint. So we have no relative motion between the, the talus and the calcaneus. They're moving together as one. As we move through this, this middle propulsive phase, this is where we start to see the relative motion. So that would be typically described as closed chain pronation. So we have the, the talus and the, and the calcaneus moving um, in, in relative motions in opposite directions. And then as we move through the, the late propulsive strategy, we get the calcaneus and talus moving again together with, with no relative motion. So typically when we have knee pain, either like a, a medial compartment load or a lateral compartment load on the knee that results in pain, we have this loss of this middle, middle propulsive phase. So that we have a loss of relative motion and then 
what what's happening is that the lower extremity is trying to recapture some form of relative motion somewhere else. So when we talk about uh, medial knee pain, we're going to see an early propulsive strategy in the foot. And what this is, is, is we look up above at the pelvis. What we have is the left side of the pelvis that, that's trying to get ahead of the right side. And so if we can't delay that propulsive strategy on the left side, we're gonna, we're gonna plantar flex and we're gonna try to hold ourselves in this early propulsive phase. That's gonna be medial knee pain. If we continue to drive the left side forward and over, so this would be typically that somebody's gonna be anteriorly oriented in the pelvis and tipped up on an oblique axis, it's gonna drive even harder and it's gonna push us um, anterior and lateral over the foot, it's gonna drive us towards a late propulsive strategy, and that's gonna result in lateral knee pain. So let's see what that looks like at the knee. So if I take a knee, I'm gonna move the patella out of the way so we can see the knee joint. So if, I, if I'm utilizing this early propulsive strategy at the foot to reduce relative motion, that's gonna result in a tibiofemoral ER representation. If I continue this, this turn of the tibia into ER relative to the femur, I'm eventually gonna hit a constraint and that's gonna be a medial compartment load. So this is, this is where we're gonna see this medial knee pain show up. Now, if, I, if the pelvis is driving me forward even farther over this extremity and I'm hitting the late propulsive strategy, I maintain the early propulsive strategy, but because I'm moving into a late propulsive foot where I have the loss of relative motion, what's gonna happen, it's gonna to start to drag the femur with it. And so now the entire system, so the whole lower extremity is going to start to behave as a single segment and it's gonna drag the femur into ER along with it. So this is where we're gonna to start to see um, uh, lateral compartment sensitivity. So the LCL will be sensitive, the, the distal IT band will, will be sensitive and probably produce pain as it pulls against its attachments on the, on the lateral knee. You'll see lateral thigh pain, a lot of sensitivity down, down the lateral thigh. And so this is the distinguishing characteristic, again, for, for medial lateral knee pain. Whereas this is, would, would be where I have the, the tibiofemoral ER relative to the femur is going to be medial compartment load and medial knee pain, but if the whole thing starts to move as a system, it's going to move into uh, a, a more laterally loaded um, uh, strategy and you get the lateral knee pain. Either way, either way, the goal is going to be to try to restore the relative motion at, at the segment. So we're gonna have to start this from the ground up. The typical places where you're gonna wanna be able to do that is, is through that middle range. So we're gonna use a lot of knee, knee flexed positions. So again, these are your split stance, half kneeling kind of positions is where you're gonna to start to recapture these things. Um, so we can, we can utilize that relative motion again. Rather than going through each one of these, um, they're already laid out for you um, as, as far as strategies go. I think that each of the, the, the video series were, were three segments, um, three segments for medial knee pain, three segments for lateral knee pain. So please go check those out on the YouTube channel or search for them on Instagram. I hope that was helpful for you to distinguish between the, the, the two ways that this is going to be represented, but just remember, whenever you lose that relative motion, something else is going to have to try to substitute for it, and that's where you're gonna get loading strategies that might result in pain. Have an outstanding Monday. Thank you again to, uh, to Logan Morrison for, for the shout out. Please go check him out. And you guys have a great day. I'll see you. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and mm, 
It is perfect. It is a great day. Um, Tuesday, kind of pressed for time. So I'm going to dive right into uh, today's Q&A, which is really good. So if you're a thrower, a golfer, a tennis player, a shot putter, whatever, somebody that uses an implement that you, that you turn into a projectile, um, this is going to be very applicable. We're going to do it under the guise of, of a golf question, but I want you to understand that, that the principles that we're going to talk about uh, today apply to all of those types of activities. So uh, Brian uh, went through askbillhartman at gmail.com and he says, in a right-handed golfer, is there a hip shift that occurs in the downswing that causes the left hip ER or IR? Okay. So this is a really, really good question because I think there's a lot of confusion as to what we're actually really looking at is whether we're looking at ERs or IRs. And there's a darn good reason that it's one or the other. So I actually get to use my pelvis as always, which is always fun. So I will grab it and then we will talk our way through this. Okay, so if we're looking at golfers, we're gonna talk about a right-handed golfer as, as Brian has requested. At the top of the backswing, so uh, for us to move into a space, we have to have, have eccentric orientation. We have to have expansion of, of certain areas to allow us to turn and to capture this external rotation position. So during periods of especially high velocity motion, we have to have these expanded strategies because we can't move through concentric orientations. We can't move through high levels of muscle activity. We use the high levels of muscle activity to actually stop motion to create, to create the acceleration into the implement. So at the top of the backswing on a right-handed golfer, this hip is going to be in an early propulsive strategy. So we're gonna move this hip into an ER position and then we have an oblique turn of the pelvis as such, but both hips are going to be in ER. My left hip for a right-handed golfer is actually in a late propulsive strategy. So that, again, also an ER position. So I'm starting at the top of the backswing with both sides of the pelvis and both hips in an ER inhaled strategy. As I pull the club down into the downswing, there's two, there's two um, moments of maximum propulsion in the golf swing. When the arms are parallel to the ground, propulsion number one, because I have to stop motion and bring the club towards the center of my body to accelerate the club head from this parallel arm position. So the club's still up and behind me relative to my arms, but I'm stopping the motion here to accelerate the club head. The second propulsive strategy is at impact. So if we were talking about baseball, um, when the lead foot hits the ground for a baseball pitcher and the, and the heel hits the ground, that's propulsion number one. At ball release, that's propulsion number two. And so again, anytime we have an implement, we're gonna have two episodes of, of maximum propulsion. Under those circumstances, I have to be in IR because I have to be able to produce a high level of internal pressure, which means I'm gonna be driving the pelvic diaphragm upward. I'm gonna be expanding the, the, the bottom of the pelvis, which is going to be an IR strategy on both sides because I have to stop motion from occurring to allow the implement to accelerate. Now, 
the smaller and lighter the implement, the shorter the duration of my maximum propulsion episode or, or impulse, if you will. And so I, I like to tell a little joke here with this one. It's like, so how fast is it with a golf swing or a baseball pitch or something where the implement is really light? So baseball is what, five ounces? You got really, really light, light golf clubs. And so it's about this fast. And then I say, you wanna hear it again because it's really, really fast. Now, if we were shot putter, we have to sustain the output for a longer period of time because if we're throwing a 16 pound shot, we, we, we don't have the same time constraint as we do with say something that's high velocity like a golf swing or a baseball pitch, right? So again, we're gonna move in from these ER positions to IR for maximum propulsion under all circumstances. Anytime we need to produce that high level of force, it's going to be an IR strategy, it's going to be exhalation based, and it's gonna be concentrically oriented because again, I need that high pressure to stop motion from occurring to allow the implement to accelerate. Follow through is gonna mirror uh, the, the backswing to, to a certain degree, as will all follow throughs, whether we're throwing a baseball, shot put, et cetera, et cetera. So Brian, I hope that helps you. Um, so again, ER, IR, ER, just like when you're walking, just like when you're throwing, just like when you're reaching, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and so uh, make sure that you're training appropriately. So if you have a sustained uh, propulsive impulse, like something that's heavier, then the heavier strength training is gonna be more of your friend. If we're talking about high velocity stuff, we're at the other end of the spectrum. And so what we need is a, a much shorter, briefer impulse. We need to train that strategy um, to allow it to occur very, very quickly, very, very forcefully, but not to sustain it as we will reduce our velocity if we spend too much time in a propulsive strategy. So again, Brian, Hope that's helpful. Happy Tuesday. I gotta run. You guys have a great Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and, oh, that is perfect. Can't wait to finish that. Okay. Wednesday's always a very, very, very busy day. Long clinic day, short morning, lots of stuff to do, um, but quick heads up. Uh, the first Q&A for IFSU members is up um, for your viewing pleasure. We've got a lot of questions that are rolling through the, the Facebook group as well. So that's pretty exciting. If you haven't gotten signed up for IFSU, I suggest you do that. We're, we're building some great coaches in there already. Um, so that's kind of exciting. All right. Quick Q&A for Wednesday. Um, this comes from Julian. And Julian says, I'm new to your channel and your content and cannot get enough. Wasn't that nice? Thank you, Julian. Um, I've learned so much through your videos, especially during this time of COVID-19. I'm not sure if you've ever discussed hyperextension of the knees. If so, can you direct me towards information on that? If not, do you have any ideas on how to treat this problem? Yes, Julian, on all counts. So there's some information on knee valgus on the YouTube channel. Um, that you'll you'll find of interest because it's similar but not quite the same. Um, so let's let's define a little bit about what we're looking at first. Um, by calling something hyperextension, the implication is is that there is some sort of um, position in the imaginary sagittal plane, and I would say that that's more more just what it is. It's a visual, um, so it is a cancellation out of of ERs and IRs that produces that 
appearance that it's going backwards so it's so it's going into excessive extension what you really have there is an external rotation problem but we also have some relative position issues that are actually creating this appearance so um, we can actually talk about elbow hyperextension if you will and knee hyperextension at the same time um, because they are the same as far as the etiology and then how it appears so I'm going to grab my my knee here and so again I got a plastic model that doesn't move like a real skeleton so we have to kind of keep that that in mind when we're talking about the valgus we had this this tibiofemoral ER relationship and when we're talking about knee hyperextension we still have that relationship but there's going to be some differences that are trickling down and some stuff that's trickling up that make it go into what appears to be hyperextension versus the the knee valgus and you might see a little bit of both um, actually in in some situations but as the as the tibia rotates into external rotation it hits its end constraint and it's going to take that distal that distal femur with it so we're, we're going to get an, an er here we're going to get an er here but if if we get um, a early propulsive strategy in in the foot this is where we're going to see concentric orientation of the anterior medial aspect of, of the musculature around the knee we're going to see an eccentric orientation on the posterior side so um, when we think about musculature that is eccentrically oriented think semitendinosus is going to be eccentrically oriented your tibialis the anterior is going to be eccentrically oriented which is going to make it very very difficult to flex the knee during gait so again so if we can't flex it during gait then it's, then it's going to try to go into what we would perceive as being being that that uh, hyperextension. Um, the short head of biceps is going to be concentrically oriented. The lateral hamstring, so bicep femoris, um, the the the, um, the full bicep femoris is going to be uh, concentrically oriented as well. And so that's why we get this appearance of what looks like the hyperextension. It's actually a twist. It's, it's an ER, bring the femur into ER, but an early propulsive strategy in the foot, which is going to drive the force straight back through the knee. A lot of times what you're going to see up, up here is this is going to be your traditional swayback individual. So they're going to be um, probably narrow, probably posterior compression. Um, you're going to see uh, an eccentric um, uh, pelvic diaphragm. And so again, they're falling hard towards towards the center. Their center of gravity is going to be forward and, and down through the middle. But because they've got that early propulsive strategy in the foot, they're going to drive that knee with what, it, what appears to be backwards into hyperextension. The elbows the same way. Um, we get the same kind of twist in, the, in an elbow that creates the hyperextension. So instead of having the, the anterior medial compartment being concentrically oriented and the posterior lateral compartment being concentrically oriented, what you're going to get is you're going to get a posterior lateral compartment uh, concentric orientation. So supinator and conius are actually going to create this really hard compressive strategy on the back side of the elbow, which again creates that appearance of, of hyperextension. But it's actually the, the twist of the radius hard into ER. Um, that when the anconius picks up its its concentric orientation on the back of the elbow, it actually twists the ulna um, in the opposite direction. So, so we have this kind of a relationship of the radius and the ulna twisting this way, and it pushes that elbow forward in what appears to be hyperextension. So under these circumstances, we got to get the elbow into it, uh, or the elbow or the knee, whichever one we're talking about. Um, we got to get it into a position where we can we can recapture the relative relative motion and relative positions. So when we're talking about the knee, we've got to get the foot into a good orientation where we can where we can 
capture that relative motion of, of the, uh, uh, the, the calcaneus, the talus, and then the distal tibia. And so that's going to be through this middle range of propulsion. So, so we're going to have to get to there so we can capture relative motions. The knee is going to be flexed so we can again capture relative motions. The hip is going to be flexed again so we can capture relative motions. And so what you're going to have to do then is probably build somebody from the ground up. So these are the half kneeling people. Um, you're going to try to work towards a split stance. And if you want to think about using the the hamstrings as reins on a horse to, to, to orient the tibia. So remember, if we're talking about knee hyperextension, then that medial hamstring, so, so semitendinosa is going to be eccentrically oriented. So we need to pull that back to internally rotate that, that proximal tibia and try to hold that femur in its, in its ER position relative to the tibia. Um, so again, you're going to be using, um, this is where people talk about like weak VMOs and things like that. The reason that we have this weak VMO is because it's been positioned, um, it's been out of position, if you will, um, for an extended period of time. So it's very, very difficult for it to move through its full excursion of eccentric to concentric orientation. Um, so that's going to try to balance itself out just, just through the, the reorientation of the knee but you're probably going to be looking at, at, at medial hamstring to lateral hamstring orientation to get the tibia right, get the foot position correct, and then you just start to drive your chops and your lifts, your, your presses, all this stuff in half kneeling, but, but really being particular about this half kneeling position to help you recapture this, this normal excursion of tibial femoral ER relationship um, to, the, to the femur, okay? So... I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, um, please ask a clarifying question as to where there may be, be some confusion. Like I said, it's very similar to the knee valgus stuff, but you get a different foot position that you're dealing with um, when, you're, when you're looking at this hyperextension kind of a thing. Um, it, but also keep in mind, it's not really hyperextension. It's, it's, it's a rotational problem and it's people trying to go towards external rotation. Um, so again, Julian, hope that's helpful. Have a great Wednesday and I will see you guys later. Happy Thursday. This is the Coffee and Coaches conference call. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it's perfect. As if there was any doubt. So Logan Morrison is a uh, first baseman for the Milwaukee Brewers. And so, so Dwight knows him. And then um, uh, Josh Lindblom is a, is a pitcher for the Brewers. Just signed with them for this season, unfortunately, but they haven't been able to play. Anyway, so uh, Logan does uh, coffee reviews on his Instagram and he reviewed NeuroCoffee. And so he had to throw in the the tagline where he takes the sip and and says that it's perfect. So, so I got a little shout out there. That was kind of kind of, kind of cool. I, I got a question. Um, it's kind of off the off the bat. How young is too young? Start looking at interventions for kind of how the kids set up. Like my son's two, but he is severely anteriorly tilted. He is thorax is very forward compressed posteriorly so. every time he runs he's like he basically falls and catches himself so it is his style of running um so obviously you're watching it as a as a coach and it's it hurts <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that i think you're just that your job is yeah. just to make sure that he's exposed to a number of different environments and let him adapt yeah right. 
And, and that's what we did. Like the worst, I think the worst thing you could do under those circumstances is to try to restrict his behaviors. Right. right. What we want yeah. is broad exposures of behaviors. You know, kids yeah. figure stuff out. And there's concerns like, oh, is this normal? It's like, yeah, absolutely, it's normal. It's like they just found a strategy that worked, and they're going to play with that for a while, and then they're going to do yeah. something else. You know, yeah. so it's like it's not like there's something wrong with them. It's just a matter yeah. of, it's just a matter of like this is how we figured it out for right now. You know, mm -hmm. and then, uh, the the thing that you want to recognize is like just expose them to a, a number of different environments. So, you know, if, if you take him outside and you're like crawling around in the grass, he's going to be in a totally different position. <clears throat> and that's what we're shooting for. We just want lots of exposure. Um, if, you, if, you, uh, if you ever like have an interest in, in that kind of developmental stuff, um, Esther Thalen, T-H-E-L-E-N, Esther Thalen, um, she looks at, she looks at the, the, the neonatal development from a dynamical systems perspective rather than the the milestone reflexes because the baby's head's about a third of his body weight right it's one of the reasons why it's one of the reasons why babies squat so well but they can't hinge right because their melon's too heavy if they try to do an rdl they face plant right and so people get so excited about oh look at the baby he's got a perfect squat he didn't have a choice right he had to do it that way um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't like, I don't like giving credit to, uh, to the youngins, you know, for being such great squatters. It's like, they're just figuring out, you know, based on the system, like what, what is available to them and how to do it in the most efficient way. How would you restructure the school system? I know this is a big topic, but oh boy. <laughs> if, if you had the choice, how would you design it? Tough call, tough call. Um, I, I think that I think that the the easiest thing to do under these circumstances look at what's going on. Okay, what do you not like about it? Right. So the number one on on all counts is the static element. Right, and then this this is a bias from being an exercise guy too. Right. You think about um, all of the all of the creativity that comes from movement and figuring things out from that perspective and problem solving that, that from that perspective is is really really powerful we know the impact of exercise on the brain and so so number one there should be a foundation of, of movement and activity that should be standard right so when I went to up through elementary school we had three recesses a day and now I don't even know. See, do they even have recess for, for the elementary kids? I don't know. Uh, they, had, they had recess when I was in elementary school. Oh, did they? Yeah. Do, do, they, do, do you know, Steve? Yeah, elementary level, but middle school, high school, it's pretty much. Yeah. Uh, lunch. I mean, middle school have, lunch, but yeah. Yeah. And then you have to have like one semester of gym class in four years of high school. Am I correct? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. And, you know, you, you read a book like Spark. Have you ever read Spark? Okay, it, it's a it, quick read, great book, and it's all about neurocoffee. <laughs> Florida. So neurocoffee has brain-derived neurotrophic factor in it. Okay. So the book, the book Spark, uh, is John Rady, I believe, is the is the author. 
anyway, they did a lot of research and it was a school system in Chicago or outside of Chicago, Naperville maybe. Um, and, and they brought kids in that were having trouble with grades and, and such. And they brought them in and they gave them a special gym class. And it was all about driving up their fitness levels. And, and they, they had significant improvement in their ability to, to raise their grades, especially within the first three hours of their exercise exposure. So they even narrowed it down that far. Um, and, and so they were looking at like, okay, well, why is that? And then they look at all of the, the elements that, that increase that are associated with exercise. So you have brain-derived neurotrophic factor, so that makes new neurons. And then you had a vascular endothelial growth factor, which contributes to um, the, the blood flow and then fibroblast growth factor, which is again, another cellular, it's like, uh, they call it miracle growth for the brain, right? So, um, so exercise would be, like that'd be the first thing I do would, would be movement-based. And then it, it, the way you grade it is not like on some sort of like generalized standard, you grade it to that person. So each individual has, has goals that they have to meet um, as an individual, right? So it's like, used to be like when, when we went to gym class, like you had to show up so many times and if you forgot your gym clothes on so many days and you got reduced a letter grade or something ridiculous like that, like that's the standard. So you have to have a fitness standard of some sort, but it's gotta be individualized, okay? So that would be the foundation of everything because movement promotes the creativity and then problem solving. So, so right away, you already have a kid that's primed for learning. And I think that's the first and, and foremost thing. I realize that there's some things that, that, that have to learn, but beyond foundational, foundational math, you know, like somebody's, somebody's stomach just went off, um, you know, foundational math, foundational sciences, things like that. I, I, you, I think you have to like to have to have those in there, but then I would say that you probably want to have something art, art derived there again to promote creativity. And then life skills. Yeah, that's a huge one that's missing. Like where did, where, like, my brother, my brother, uh, five years older than me, and he had to take a home ec class in high school. Um, so he had to learn how to cook for himself. Yeah. Let us sew. Right. And again, it sounds stupid, but um, you know, I, I didn't get, I didn't get married until I was in my 30s. So I had, you know, decade and a half, maybe a little bit more of where I had to like fend for myself, right? And if you don't take the time to learn these things, then you're the guy that's eating all the fast food. Yeah. So, but again, just, just like life skills like that and, and, and just things that like, hey, simple toilet repair. I would love to have that because I got a toilet right now that does not shut up, right? And, and or I, I should have become a plumber because they're apparently doing very well right now. Um, you know, those, those, those types of skills, but, but again, like all that kind of stuff, like making a good human, but with a foundational science background so that they can speak intelligently about a number of different things, right. Rather than having these standardized tests that, that, you know, that they're teaching and I, I don't know because it's better than I can on any level. It's like they're teaching classes to pass a test. They're not teaching, they're not teaching humans to be great people. I think it goes back to what you're saying, Bill. I think it, there needs to be more emphasis on movement and just like, you know, like I, I, I do it all the time for my kids is like taking them on a walk. I'm like, all right, we got 70 minutes of class. Let's do history stuff. And then we're going to go for a walk for like 10, minutes, 10 yeah. 15 minutes and just get outside. Yeah. 
So. It, it, it's so simple, so simple an idea. The way that you challenge people is, is you take them up to their self-image, like whatever they, whatever they believe their capabilities are, and you try to keep them as close to that as you can, because if it's too easy, then you know the, the attention span goes down. If it's too hard, then they, 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 they give up. So there's a sweet spot in there. If you read um, Rise of Superman, um, is another another nice little book. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a better read than trying to read uh, Chick Sent Me High's Flow, which I I which put me to sleep because of all the creativity and the thoughts and you know, I talk about walking and stuff. When you have a question or a problem to solve, it's like go for a walk. It works great. What that does is it is it reduces the the um, the frontal cortex influence. On, on the brain processes, and and so then you get what's called hypofrontality, which is like the that leads right into creativity. Um, and again, great for problem solving, great for coming up with great ideas and and such. So the mentee, and we were talking about um, something that he had read before, like early on in his in his career, and then going back and then reading rereading some of these things that you had read before because. You know, having evolved, your whole thought process can can be totally different. Your whole perspective and seeing certain things can can be totally different. You know, things that that you had thought were oh, that's just not very useful. It just happened to be not useful at the time, and now you read it with a different perspective. You go, oh, I see how this can can play into it. I see how this can work. But the cool thing about fiction, so I don't like I don't like fiction books. So my fiction is my comic books, right? Um, but, but the element of creativity where you have to actually create some of that story in your head um, is really, really powerful because it, it, it just promotes this process of being creative, which then allows you to carry that over to something that seems a little bit more concrete when we're, when we're you know, evaluating an athlete or we're trying to structure a program a little bit differently or we're trying to come up with a, with a solution you know, for somebody to execute an activity. It's like, it's like people don't recognize the value of that. And so I think that there should be an element of, of um, you know, if you're, if you're a reader, I think there should be an element of um, fiction, however you like it. It doesn't matter. There's like no rules and stuff like that. So the diaphragm is two muscles, right? There's the choral element and then there's the costal element. And so they can behave differently, okay? Um, even during the same breath. And so there's a certain shape um, that is, is created um, when you're breathing under load. So if I, if I put a load on you and you have to breathe a certain way, the, the costal and the coral diaphragms behave differently. So the shape is non-uniform. So people say, well, of course, the left side's lower than the right side and blah, 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 blah. It's like, I'm talking about looking at this from a side view. It's like, you can see the front and the back part of the diaphragm. So the back part's the coral diaphragm where it attaches to the spine and the costal being more, more anterior. It's like they behave differently. There's a, there's, there's a very specific shape that would, that would take place that would be associated with the, the position of the, of the ribs. So when we talk about wides and narrows, it's like, well, if the diaphragm's attached to the ISA, right? That diaphragm has to be in a different shape. I, uh, anatomically speaking, Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of problems in the way that we describe things that that creates so much more confusion than it does it, it doesn't it's not helpful you know looking at things as, as if they were different but that's you know if we're basing 
our anatomy off of guys that, that did the first dissections like about 2300 years ago. So it's like 300 BC, I think, were the first recorded dissections. And um, they got to name the stuff because they were first. <laughs> you know, and so if we're, if we're basing, in, in all seriousness, like we're basing our anatomical understanding off of guys that did dissections 2300 years ago with absolutely no foundation of understanding. And, and so it's like, oh, well, we've always done it this way. Okay, so now we're back to Michelle's question about what would you change about school, right? First of all, clean the slate. Let's rename everything, okay? Because even though we were terrible at naming stuff, I think we could be better at it now than we were 2,300 years ago. Good morning, happy Friday. I have my neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Happy Friday. This is awesome. It's been a great week. I had my chips and salsa last night. Very exciting. Um, my buddy Jim Ferris sent me a picture of a margarita that he had last night. So I actually had a margarita, which I normally don't do on a Thursday. Um, so I enjoyed that a great deal. Rocks, no salt for those of you keeping track at home. Had a bunch of questions that came in this week, but um, wanted to pick one out that is is a, a uh, sort of like a case that we can t talk our way through because um, I think a lot of people are going to be facing these situations, especially with your heavily trained individuals. Um, so this comes from Thomas, and Thomas is having trouble with dorsal rostral expansion. Um, so those of you who are unfamiliar, the dorsal rostral area means upper back. So the dorsal is the backside, rostral is up. So this is the upper back area. So this is between the scapula. And so Thomas has a rather long explanation. So hang in there with me. I got to read this. So Tom says, I'm a wide ISA individual with years of hard exercise, got pretty deep into the compensatory patterns. I'm limited in hip and shoulder ER and IR, so internal and external rotation, um, and have difficulties turning. I've made some good progress thanks to the Camperini deadlift, but I'm still dealing with the inability to get dorsal rostral expansion. The muscles in my upper back constantly feel engaged. I've tried the Terry Project move for dorsal rostral expansion. Uh, but struggle to find success there because my shoulders want to immediately hike up. So he's got a lot of anterior posterior compression through this, this area. So he's really, really squeezed in in this representation here, okay, which makes the clavicle and the scapula ride up onto the, uh, the upper part of the, the rib cage. So he's got a lot of compression there. Um, my Camperini angle, so that's the angle between the scapula and the clavicle. So again, we're looking at this angle right there. Okay, it should be about 60 degrees. And his is a lot less than 60 degrees. I've tried the manual interver intervention I posted on YouTube. So there's a scapular mobilization that you can use to, to depress this scapula and actually open up the Camperini angle. Doesn't work for everyone, clearly. Doesn't work for Thomas. Um, he says it causes numbness and tingling down my arm to my fingers. Um, and so curious on your thoughts, Bill, uh, as to where this leads me. Would, be wise, would it be wise to focus on working this from the bottom up, trying to push through dorsal rostral specific activities. Okay, so let's strategize this thing from the get-go. Okay, so Thomas, you've got a lot of training under your belt, clearly. You've used a lot of compressive type activities. The number one strategy in these circumstances when you're trying to make a change is don't do something that interferes with your intention. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me. 
So here's what you gotta start with. You have to eliminate the activities that are actually increasing this compressive strategy or reinforcing the compressive strategy. So these would be anything that is, that is maximal effort, high level effort, high level hypertrophy, strong exhalation strategies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this is the hardest part to eliminate for most people because everybody wants to train hard and they're used to training hard, <clears throat> excuse me, and they're used to training hard. And so it becomes very, very difficult um, for them to eliminate the things that are actually getting in the way. Hang on a second here, hang on. NeuroCoffee to the rescue, there we go. Okay, so no barbells. If there's a barbell in your hands, you're gonna increase your compressive strategy handstand. Um, anything that's bilateral symmetrical, so both arms and legs are doing the same thing at the same time. So a squat, a deadlift, a press, a row, a chin up, etc., etc., all will increase your compressive strategies. So let's keep that in mind. So what we're going to start to do is start training one side of the body at a time. So we have a compression on one side, we can have expansion on the other. So that's the way you want to start to think about structuring your strength training, but you're also going to have to reduce your intensity level because again, anytime you use that exhalation strategy, you're going to be reinforcing the superficial musculature as exhalers. Sideline activities to start to re-educate your ability to breathe without the, the compensatory uh, exhalation strategies. So this is a kinder, gentler kind of a thing. It's really boring for most people because it's no fun. It's not lifting heavy things. It's not driven towards any type of performance other than to find the other end of the performance spectrum. Um, so this is gentle rolling techniques, gentle rotations, um, Anything that, that falls under the, the axial skeletal PNF patterns is a great way to do this, but it's gotta be kinder and gentler. It's gotta be very, very low effort, and it's gotta be very, very quiet, relaxed type breathing. You have to actually learn to reduce your concentric orientations. Um, so again, we have to use this low compressive style of, of breathing, especially with exhalations. Um, manual therapies are actually very, very good under these circumstances. So. You have a lot of stiffness that you're dealing with. And this is not just muscular activity. So this is not just concentric orientation. This is skeletal stiffness. So we're gonna start looking at manual therapies as an adjunct to helping you find a way to create these expansions. So this is where um, I will send people off to our, our, our favorite human being as regard to the massage world, um, Jenny Owens here at, in the IFAST world. Um, she's awesome. She works with a lot of high level athletes and we get great responses from that. So um, that type of soft tissue actually promotes shape change um, at the muscular level so we can actually reduce some of this concentric orientation and then you follow it with your activities to actually reduce the concentric orientation as well and we get a nice little effect there. Um, rib manipulations and mobilizations under these circumstances is actually very, very helpful. We have to restore some of the mobility to the ribs themselves because they get compressed. They become stiffer um, in their behavior uh, because, they, again, they're just part of the compressive strategy. So we have to start thinking along those lines and, again, follow that type of a manual therapy with activities to help you reduce concentric orientation and promote the mobility through the, the thorax. Tractioning activities um, reduce concentric orientation. Um, so again, we can use, you can use banded tractions, you can use light, light suitcase carries and, and such to help you promote some of this eccentric orientation that you're missing. You're somewhat correct um, when you're talking about a bottom-up strategy. So inversion strategies under these circumstances are gonna be very, very helpful because they're gonna flip-flop 
the the airflow as far as the way that the lungs are going to fill. So we want to we want to expand this this upper part of the thorax. If I flip you upside down, it's a little bit easier to get that upper part of the lung lung to fill up. Um, I would start with a supine inversion um, since you're a wide ISA because of the shape of the diaphragm you're going to get a better posterior expansion under those circumstances because you're going to have to build the expansion chances are from below the level of scapula first then worry about dorsal rostral then you can flip yourself over and and go uh, face down inversions to to recapture that. Um, I would also encourage you, since it's kind of summery now and, and hopefully you've got access to a pool, is just get in the pool and hang out. Um, get the water level up to your neck, move around, start working on your turning capabilities. Um, again, gentle uh, inhales and exhales and just start to move in a lower gravity situation so you can actually relearn to expand yourself. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, but but this is not something that, that you typically can force your way through. So working harder is usually not the best case scenario. You typically need some um, additional assistance through the manual therapies. So I think if you put a, a combination of factors together here, Thomas, I think you've got a, you've got a shot at this. But again, I would I would say that, that if you're going to try to force your way out of this probably not going to work. You're going to have to go kinder and gentler a little bit and you're going to have to, to modify what you're doing. Take away some of the intensive activities to allow this expansion to occur. Um, keep me posted on this, Thomas, because I, I, I think that a lot of people are, are struggling with these kind of situations um, because they're, they're trying to work too hard to get their way out of it and it just doesn't work. So I hope everybody has a great Friday. It's a beautiful day today. I'm going to be outside a little bit today, so I'm excited about that. And have a great weekend. And happy 4th of July tomorrow for those of you in the United States of America. And I will see you.